Chapter 18 At Leckenfield House, the thermostats were turned down to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, two degrees lower than other government departments, in order to set a good example. We worked in our overcoats and finger gloves, and some of the better-off girls wore knitted woolly hats with pom-poms from their skiing holidays. We were issued with squares of felt to put under our feet against the cold coming up through the floor. The best way to warm your hands was to keep typing. Now that the train drivers were on an overtime ban in support of the miners, it was reckoned that power stations could run out of coal by the end of January, just as the nation ran out of money. In Uganda, Idi Amin was arranging a whip-round and offering a lorry load of vegetables to the stricken former colonial masters if only the RAF would care to come and collect it. There was a letter from Tom waiting for me when I got back to Camden from my parents. He was going to borrow his father's car to drive Laura back to Bristol. It wasn't going to be easy. She was telling the family that she wanted to take the children with her. There had been shouting scenes around the Christmas turkey, but the hostel only took adults, and Laura, as usual, was in no shape to care for her kids. His plan was to come to London so that we could see in the new year together. But on the 30th, he sent a telegram from Bristol. He couldn't leave Laura yet. He'd have to stay and try to settle her in. So I saw in 1974 with my three housemates at a party in Mornington Crescent. I was the only one in the teeming squalid flat who wasn't a solicitor. I was at some kind of trestle table, pouring tepid white wine into a used paper cup, when someone actually pinched my bottom, really hard. I whirled round and was furious, probably with the wrong person. I came away early and was home in bed by one, lying on my back in the freezing dark, feeling sorry for myself. Before I fell asleep, I remember Tom telling me how superb the support people were at Laura's hostel. If so, how strange it was that he needed to stay in Bristol for two whole days. But it didn't seem important, and I slept deeply, barely troubled by my legal friends coming in drunk at four. The year turned, and the three-day week began, but we were officially defined as a vital service and worked the full five. On the 2nd of January, I was called to a meeting in Harry Tapp's office on the second floor. There was no advance warning, no indication of the subject. It was ten o'clock when I got there and Benjamin Trescott was on the door, checking names off a list. I was surprised to find more than twenty people in the room, among them two from my intake, all of us too junior to presume to take one of the moulded plastic chairs set out in a constricted horseshoe around Tapp's desk. Peter Nutting came in, scanned the room, and went out again. Harry Tapp got up from his desk and followed him out. I assumed, therefore, that this was a sweet-tooth affair. Everyone was smoking, murmuring, waiting. I squeezed into an eighteen-inch gap between a filing cabinet and the safe. It didn't bother me, as it once would have, to have no one to talk to. I smiled across at Hilary and Belinda. They shrugged and rolled their eyes to show me that they thought it was all a great wheeze. They obviously had sweet-tooth writers of their own, academics or hacks who couldn't resist the Foundation's shilling. But surely, no one with the luster of T. H. Haley.
Ten minutes passed, and the plastic chairs filled up. Max came in and took one in a middle row. I was behind him, so he didn't see me at first. Then he turned and glanced round the room, looking for me, I was certain. Our eyes met only briefly, and he turned to face forwards again and took out a pen. My sightline wasn't good, but I thought his hand was shaking. There were a couple of figures I recognised from the fifth floor, but no director general. Sweet Tooth was nowhere near important enough. Then Tap and Nutting came back in with a short, muscular man in horn-rimmed glasses, with closely cropped grey hair and a well-cut blue suit and silk tie of darker blue polka dots. Tap went to his desk, while the other two stood before us patiently, waiting for the room to settle. Nutting said, Pierre's based in London, and has kindly agreed to say a few words about the way his work may have some bearing on our own. From the brevity of this introduction and Pierre's accent, we assumed he was CIA. He was certainly no Frenchman. His voice was a seesaw tenor, pleasantly tentative. He gave the impression that if any utterance of his were to be disproved, he would change his view in line with the facts. Behind the owlish, near-apologetic manner, I began to realise was limitless confidence. He was my first encounter with an American of the patrician class, a man from an established Vermont family, as I learned later, and the author of a book on the Spartan hegemony, and another on Agesilaus II and the beheading of Tissaphernes in Persia. I warmed to Pierre. He began by saying that he was going to tell us something about the softest, sweetest part of the Cold War, the only truly interesting part, the War of Ideas. He wanted to give us three verbal snapshots. For the first, he asked us to think of pre-war Manhattan, and quoted the opening lines of a famous Auden poem that Tony had read to me once, and I knew that Tom loved. It wasn't famous to me, and it hadn't meant much up until this point, but hearing an Englishman's lines quoted back to us by an American was touching. I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid. And that was Pierre in 1940, nineteen years old, visiting an uncle in Midtown, bored by the prospect of college, getting drunk in a bar. Except he wasn't quite so uncertain as Auden. He longed for his country to join the war in Europe and assign him a role. He wanted to be a soldier. Then Pierre evoked for us the year 1950, when mainland Europe and Japan and China were in ruins or enfeebled, Britain was impoverished by a long, heroic war, Soviet Russia was counting its dead in the many millions, and America, its economy fattened and enlivened by the fight, was waking to the awesome nature of its new responsibilities as prime guardian of human liberty on the planet. Even as he said this, he spread his hands and appeared to regret it, or apologise. It could have been otherwise. The third snapshot was also of 1950. Here is Pierre, the Moroccan and Tunisian campaigns, Normandy and the Battle of Hurtgen Forest and the liberation of Dakar behind him, and he's an associate professor of Greek at Brown University, walking towards the entrance of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel on Park Avenue, passing a crowd of assorted demonstrators, American patriots, Catholic nuns, and right-wing nutters.
Inside, Pierre said dramatically, holding up an open hand, I witnessed a contest that would change my life. It was a gathering with the unexceptional title of Cultural and Scientific Conference for World Peace, nominally organized by an American professional council, but in fact an initiative of the Soviet common form. The thousand delegates from all over the world were those whose faith in the communist ideal had not yet been shattered, or not completely shattered, by show trials, the Nazi-Soviet pact, repression, purges, torture, murder, and labor camps. The great Russian composer, Dmitry Shostakovich, was there against his will, under orders from Stalin. Among the delegates from the American side were Arthur Miller, Leonard Bernstein, and Clifford Odets. These and other luminaries were critical or distrustful of an American government that was asking its citizens to treat a former invaluable ally as a dangerous enemy. Many believed that the Marxist analysis still held, however messy events were turning out to be. And those events were much distorted by an American press owned by greedy corporate interests. If Soviet policy seemed surly or aggressive, if it leaned a little on its internal critics, it was in a defensive spirit, for it had faced Western hostility and sabotage from its inception. In short, Pierre told us, the whole event was a propaganda coup for the Kremlin. It had prepared in capitalism's capital a world stage for itself, on which it would appear as the voice of peace and reason, if not freedom, and it had scores of eminent Americans on its side. But... Pierre raised an arm and pointed upwards with a rigid forefinger, trapping us all for several seconds in his theatrical pause. Then he told us that way up on the tenth floor of the hotel, in a suite of luxury rooms, was a volunteer army of subversion, a band of intellectuals gathered together by an academic philosopher called Sidney Hook, a group of mostly non-communist leftists, the democratic ex-communist or ex-Trotskyist left, determined to challenge the conference and, crucially, not to permit criticism of the Soviet Union to be the monopoly of the lunatic right. Bowed over typewriters, mimeograph machines and recently installed multiple phone lines, they had worked through the night, sustained by generous room service snacks and booze. They intended to disrupt proceedings downstairs by asking awkward questions in the sessions, particularly about artistic freedom and by issuing a stream of press releases. They, too, could claim heavyweight support, even more impressive than the other sides. Mary McCarthy, Robert Lowell, Elizabeth Hardwick, and international support at a distance from T.S. Eliot, Igor Stravinsky, and Bertrand Russell, among many others. The counter-conference campaign was a success because it seized the media narrative and became the headline. All the right questions were insinuated into the conference sessions. Shostakovich was asked if he agreed with a Pravda denunciation of Stravinsky, Hindemith and Schoenberg as decadent bourgeois formalists. The great Russian composer got slowly to his feet and mumbled his agreement with the article and was shown to be miserably trapped between his conscience and his fear of displeasing his KGB handlers and of what Stalin would do to him when he got home. Between the sessions, in the upstairs suite, Pierre, with a telephone and a typewriter of his own in a corner near a bathroom, met the contacts who would transform his life, 
eventually prompting him to leave his teaching job and devote his life to the CIA and the War of Ideas. For, of course, the agency was paying the bills of the conference opposition, and it was learning in the process how effectively this war could be waged at one remove by writers, artists, intellectuals, many of them on the left, who had their own powerful ideas drawn from bitter experience of the seduction and false promises of communism. What they needed, even if they did not know it, was what the CIA could provide. Organization, structure, and above all, funding. This was important when operations moved to London, Paris, and Berlin. What helped us back in the early fifties was that no one in Europe had a cent. And so, in Pierre's description, he became a different kind of soldier, drawn again into many new campaigns in liberated but threatened Europe. He was, for a while, an assistant to Michael Josselson, and later a friend of Melvin Lasky's until a rift opened up between them. Pierre was involved in the Congress for Cultural Freedom, wrote articles in German for the prestigious periodical Der Monat, which was CIA-funded, and did backroom work with the setting up of Encounter. He learnt the delicate art of stroking the egos of intellectual prima donnas, helped organise tours by an American ballet company, and orchestras, modern art shows, and more than a dozen conferences that occupied what he called the hazardous terrain where politics and literature meet. He said he was surprised by the fuss and naivety that followed on from Ramparts magazine's 1967 exposure of the CIA funding of Encounter. Wasn't the case against totalitarianism a rational and decent one for governments to adopt? Here in Britain, no one was ever troubled by the Foreign Office paying for the BBC World Service, which was highly regarded. And so was Encounter still, despite the hullabaloo and pretended surprise and nose-holding and mentioning the F.O. reminded him to commend the work of I.R.D. He particularly admired what it had done in promoting Orwell's work, and he liked its arm's-length funding of publishing lists like Ampersand and Bellman Books. After almost twenty-three years on the job, what conclusions would he draw? He would make two points. The first was the most important. The Cold War was not over whatever people said, and therefore the cause of cultural freedom remained vital and would always be noble. Although there weren't many left who held a torch for the Soviet Union, there were still the vast, frozen intellectual hinterlands where people lazily adopted neutralist positions. The Soviet Union was no worse than the United States. Such people needed to be confronted. As for the second point, he quoted a remark by his old CIA friend-turned-broadcaster, Tom Braden, to the effect that the United States was the only country on the planet that didn't understand that some things work better when they're small. This earned an appreciative murmur in the crowded room from our cash-strapped service. Our own projects have gotten too big, too numerous, too diverse and ambitious and overfunded. We've lost discretion, and our message lost its freshness along the way. We're everywhere, and we've become the heavy hand, and we've created resentment. I know you have your own new thing going here. I wish it luck. But seriously, gentlemen, keep it small. 
Pierre, if that was his name, was not taking questions, and as soon as he finished, he nodded curtly to the applause and let himself be guided by Peter Nutting towards the door. As the room emptied, with the less senior automatically holding back, I was dreading the moment when Max turned and caught my eye and came over to tell me we needed to meet. For office reasons, of course. But when I saw his back and large ears among the crowd edging out of the door, I felt a mix of bewilderment and familiar guilt. I had hurt him so badly he couldn't bear to speak to me. The idea horrified me. As usual, I tried to summon up protective indignation. He was the one who had told me once that women couldn't keep their personal lives out of their work. Was it my fault that he now preferred me to his fiancée? I pleaded my own case all the way down the concrete stairs. I took them to avoid having to talk to colleagues in the lift, and my case intruded all day around my desk. Did I make a fuss? Was I pleading and tearful when Max turned away from me? No. So why shouldn't I be with Tom? Didn't I deserve my happiness? It was a joy, two days later, to be on the Friday evening train to Brighton, after a separation of almost two weeks. Tom came to the station to meet me. We saw each other as the train slowed, and he ran alongside my carriage, mouthing something I didn't understand. Nothing in my life had been so sweetly exhilarating as stepping off that train into his embrace. His grip was so tight it knocked the air out of me. He said into my ear, I'm just beginning to realize how special you are. I told him in a whisper that I'd longed for this moment. When we pulled apart, he took my bag. I said, You look different. I am different. He almost shouted it, and he laughed wildly. I've got this amazing idea. Can you tell me? It's so weird, Serena. Then tell me. Let's go home. Eleven days. Too long. So we went to Clifton Street, where the Shabley was waiting in a silver ice bucket, which Tom had bought in Asprey's. It was strange to have ice cubes in January. The wine would have been colder left in the fridge, but who cared? We drank it as we undressed each other. Of course, separation had stoked us. The Shabley fired us up as usual, but neither was sufficient to explain the hour that followed. We were the strangers who knew exactly what to do. Tom had an air of yearning tenderness about him that dissolved me. It was almost like sorrow. It brought out in me such a powerful feeling of protectiveness that I found myself wondering as we lay together on the bed and he kissed my breasts whether I would ask him, one day, if I should come off the pill. But it wasn't a baby I wanted. It was him. When I felt and squeezed the small, tight roundness of his buttocks and drew him towards me, I thought of him as a child I would possess and cherish and never let out of my sight. It was a feeling I had long ago with Jeremy in Cambridge, but that time I was deceived. Now the sensation of enclosing and possessing him was almost like pain, as though all the best feelings I'd ever had were gathered to an unbearable, sharp point. This was not one of those loud, sweaty sessions that follow a separation. 
A passing wire with a view through the bedroom curtains would have peeped at an unadventurous couple in missionary pose, barely making a sound. Our rapture held its breath. We hardly moved for fear of letting go. This particular feeling, that he was now entirely mine and always would be, whether he wanted it or not, was weightless, empty. I could disown it at any point. I felt fearless. He was kissing me lightly and murmuring my name over and over. Perhaps this was the time to tell him, when he couldn't get away. Tell him now, I kept thinking. Tell him what you do. But when we came out of our dream, when the rest of the world poured back in on us and we heard the traffic outside and the sound of a train pulling into Brighton Station, and we started thinking about our plans for the rest of the evening, I realized how close I'd been to self-destruction. We didn't go to a restaurant that night. Lately the weather had turned mild, to the government's probable relief and the miners' irritation. Tom was restless and wanted to walk along the seafront. So we went down West Street and set off along the broad, deserted promenade in the direction of Hove, cutting inland to stop in a pub, and at another point to buy fish and chips. Even down by the sea there was no wind. The street lamps were dimmed to save energy, but they still smeared a bilious orange on the thick, low cloud. I couldn't quite say what was different about Tom. He was affectionate enough, gripping my hand to make a point or putting an arm round me and drawing me closer to him. We walked fast and he talked quickly. We swapped Christmases. He described the scene, the terrible parting between his sister and her children, and how she tried to drag her little girl with a prosthetic foot into the car with her, and how Laura wept all the way to Bristol and said terrible things about the family especially their parents. I recounted the moment when the bishop embraced me and I cried. Tom made me go through the scene in detail. He wanted to know more about my feelings and how it had been walking from the station. Was it like being a child again? Did I suddenly realize just how much I missed home? How long did it take me to recover? And why didn't I go and talk to my father about it later? I told him I cried because I cried, and I didn't know why. We stopped, and he kissed me and said I was a hopeless case. When I told him about my night walk around the cathedral close with Lucy and Luke, Tom was disapproving. He wanted me to promise never to smoke cannabis again. This Puritan streak surprised me, and though it would have been an easy promise to keep, I simply shrugged. I thought he had no business demanding pledges from me. I asked him about his new idea, but he was evasive. Instead, he gave me the news from Bedford Square. Mashler loved from the Somerset levels and was planning to bring it out by the end of March, a speed record in the publishing world and only possible because the editor was such a force. The idea was to meet the deadline for the Jane Austen Prize for Fiction, easily as prestigious as a new-fangled booker. The chances of making it onto the shortlist were remote, but it appeared that Mashler was telling everyone about his new author, and the fact that the book was being raced into print, especially for the judging panel, had already been mentioned in newspapers. This was how you got a book talked about. 
I wondered what Pierre would have to say about the service funding the author of an anti-capitalist novella. Keep it small. I said nothing, and squeezed Tom's arm. We sat on a municipal bench, facing out to sea like an old couple. There was supposed to be a waning half-moon, but it had no chance against the heavy lid of tangerine cloud. Tom's arm was round my shoulder, the English Channel was oily calm and silent, and for the first time in days I felt peaceful too as I shrank against my lover. He said he'd been invited to give a reading in Cambridge at an event for new young writers. He'd be sharing a stage with Kingsley Amos's son Martin, who would also be reading from his first novel, which, like Tom's, would be published this year, and by Mashler too. What I want to do, Tom said, I'll only do with your permission. The day after the reading, he would travel on by train from Cambridge to my hometown in order to talk to my sister. I'm thinking of a character who lives on the margins, scrapes by but quite successfully, believes in tarot cards and astrology and that sort of thing, likes drugs, though not to excess, believes a fair number of conspiracy theories you know, thinks the moon landings were in a studio. And at the same time, in other spheres, she's perfectly sensible. A good mother to her little boy, goes on anti-Vietnam war marches, a reliable friend, and so on. It doesn't quite sound like Lucy, I said, and immediately felt ungenerous and wanted to make amends. But she's very kind, really, and she'll like talking to you. One condition, you're not to talk about me. Done. I'll write and tell her you're a good friend who's broke and needs a bed for the night. We walked on. Tom had never given a public reading before, and he was apprehensive. He was going to read from the very end of his book, the part he was most proud of, the grisly death scene of father and daughter in one another's arms. I said it would be a shame to give away the plot. Old-fashioned thinking. Remember, I'm a middle-brow. The end is already there in the beginning. Serena, there is no plot, it's a meditation. He was also wondering about protocol. Who should go first, Amos or Haley? How did one decide? Amos should. Top of the bill goes last, I said loyally. Oh, God, if I wake in the night and think about this reading... I can't sleep. How about alphabetically? No, I mean standing up in front of a crowd, reading stuff people are perfectly capable of reading for themselves. I don't know what it's for. It's giving me night sweats. We went down onto the beach so that Tom could hurl stones into the sea. He was strangely energetic. I sensed again his agitation or suppressed excitement. I sat leaning back against a bank of shingle while he kicked the pebbles over, looking for the right weight and shape. He took little runs at the water's edge, and his throw went far out into the light mist, where the soundless splash was a faint patch of white. After ten minutes, he came and sat beside me, breathless and sweaty, with a taste of salt in his kisses. The kisses began to get more serious, and we were close to forgetting where we were. 
he squeezed my face between his palms and said, Listen, whatever happens, you need to know how much I like being with you. I was worried. This was the corny sort of thing a cinema hero says to his girl before he goes off to die somewhere. I said, Whatever happens? He was kissing my face, pushing me back against the uncomfortable stones. I mean, I'll never change my mind. You're very, very special. I let myself be reassured. We were fifty yards across the beach from the railed pavement above, and it looked like we were about to make love. I wanted it as much as he did. I said, Not here. But he had a plan. He lay on his back and unzipped his fly while I kicked off my shoes, peeled off my tights and knickers, and stuffed them into my coat pocket. I sat on him, with my skirt and coat spilling around us, and each time I swayed slightly, he groaned. We thought we looked innocent enough to any passerby on the Hove promenade. Keep still a moment, he said quickly, or it'll all be over. He looked so beautiful, with his head thrown back and his hair spilling over the stones. We stared into each other's eyes. We heard the traffic on the seafront road, and only occasionally a wavelet tinkling on the shore. A little later, he said in a distant, toneless voice, Serena, we can't let this stop. There's no way around it. I have to tell you. It's simple. I love you. I tried to say it back to him, but my throat was too constricted and I could only gasp. His words finished us, right there together, with our cries of joy lost to the sound of passing cars. This was a sentence we'd avoided saying. It was too momentous. It marked the line we were wary of crossing, the transition from an enjoyable affair to something weighty and unknown, almost like a burden. It didn't feel that way now. I brought his face near mine, kissed him, and repeated his words. It was easy. Then I turned away from him and knelt on the shingle to rearrange my dress. As I did so, I knew that before this love began to take its course, I would have to tell him about myself. And then the love would end. So I couldn't tell him. But I had to. Afterwards, we lay with our arms linked, giggling like children in the dark at our secret, at the mischief we'd got away with. We laughed at the enormity of the words we had spoken. Everyone else was bound by the rules, and we were free. We'd make love all over the world. Our love would be everywhere. We sat up and shared a cigarette. Then we both began to shiver from the cold, and so we headed for home.